You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, everyone. I'm John Spiros and I'm here with Jeff Middleman. Hey, Jeff. Hey, John. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you. The good place brings people together. And it does. <laughs> so you're also a rabbi. And where do you do your rabbying? So I'm the founding director of Sinai and Synapses, which bridges the worlds of religion and science which means that we often deal with questions of philosophy because questions of how do we know what we know? How do we make these kinds of decisions? There's a lot of psychology and a lot of neuroscience and obviously a lot of religion and Judaism in, in these conversations. So I usually say to people, we're not really going to get to know each other through our resumes or stuff. But in your case, I think we I really do want to talk about what you do and how that applies to this episode that we're talking about, which is chapter 19, The Trolley Problem. But before we do that, which of the main Good Place characters today are you the most like? I definitely identify as cheaty. I, you're having to think through. It, it, it is very hard for me to be able to make decisions of I want to do the right thing. And that sometimes creates a lot of anxiety of am I doing the right thing? Am I not doing the right thing? Very, very much identify with him. And and how about one you wish you were more like? I, I, I think there are elements where I think Chidi is very much a goal, although there's an element of Jason that I like of, of being able to turn that part of your brain off and just being able to say, let me just, let me just go for this. Let me be a little bit bolder and, and, and see what happens. So uh, I also think he's, I think the funniest of the characters. Yeah, that is great. So I have to say that I think you're the first person who said that the the one you'd like to be a little more like might be the one you already are. Some of that is brilliant. And yeah, in some ways, I think for me, although I've always said that the I'm a cheaty who wants to be a Janet a bit more, that yeah, maybe that synthesis of Jason, because he's the one who seems to always articulate the ethical position in a way most clearly. And if you could sort of mm-hmm. run him and cheaty together, maybe that would be an interesting mix. Uh, so do you have a, a good place origin story, how you got into the show? Yeah, I, I think like a lot of people, it was on Netflix. My wife and I will binge something and we had heard things about The Good Place. And all we knew about it was that Kristen Bell was in it and she died and she tries to become a better person. But we had no idea about the the twist at the end of season one. So as we were watching all of season one, we were wondering, yeah, why why was the neighborhood not working so well? Was it because it was Michael's first neighborhood? Was it because of Eleanor? What what was going on? And then when the, the holy mother forking shirt falls uh, <laughs> at the end of, of season one, we actually then rewatched all of all of season one immediately afterwards and saw all the clues. And I think we've seen, I think I've seen every episode at least twice, a couple, a lot of clips. I'll watch a lot of clips to be able to show as well. And so how long after the show aired, do you know that you started? Uh, I think we started to see, we saw the first two seasons on Netflix and then the the fourth season came live and the third season came on Netflix. So we watched the third season when it came on Netflix and and then had it recorded. So like we, you know, within, within that week, we watched all of season three and then caught up to oh, season wow. four. I was going to say there'd be some delayed gratification to know it's out there. And <laughs> just a, it was just a little bit. We were really, we were really excited. We were very antsy for both season three to come onto Netflix and then for season four to start. Because I think they, I think season three came up. I actually remember, yeah, we were on, I was on vacation and it was August of 
August of 19, I think, when season three came on on Netflix and then season four started like in September. So we were able to watch all of season three and then go right into season four. Yeah, I think that's about when I caught up too. And, you know, I pretty quickly had this idea about some sort of podcast thing that I was trying to wrangle a bunch of friends into. And then when the pandemic started, sort of put that aside and thought, oh, it's too, it's too silly. People aren't going to want to go there. And hopefully the timing is is right to be having these conversations. So do you want to jump in and let's talk about the episode? And Jeff, you can give us the summary. Sure, absolutely. So this is the episode of The Trolley Problem, where Chidi teaches his ethics class about the trolley problem, but Michael is not engaging as he promised the humans that he would. Michael suggests that he would learn if the problem were less abstract. And so he constructs a realistic simulation where Chidi has to make decisions based on ethics on the fly. Each time, Chidi ends up covered in the blood of the fake people he runs over with a trolley called the Ethics Express. <laughs> Eventually, Michael owns up that this was just another way to torture Chidi. Tahani and Jason continue their relationship, but Tahani doesn't want to tell anyone about it. Jason sees that Tahani is embarrassed by him and suggests that she talk it over with someone, so Tahani asks Janet for advice. After learning all of psychotherapy in one second, Janet learns to listen to Tahani and then to Jason, but helping them make their relationship better causes Janet's thumb to swell and then pop off. She goes on then to explain to Michael that she is glitching and it's possible that the whole neighborhood will collapse as a result. So how are you? <laughs> great, great lines. It's a classic episode here. And... It's a great episode. and It's a fascinating example of moral philosophy. There's actually a whole book called Would You Kill the Fat Man? about the trolley problem. That, that The trolley problem itself is really interesting, but all the variations actually create a lot of questions, even beyond what 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 Michael is able to do and the variations that, that Michael puts on the cheaty there. And, and the way that we make these decisions, and there's actually some really interesting neuroscience. We do, we do an, an interview on our podcast called Sacred Science. And this upcoming week, we're going to be talking with Professor Rebecca Sachs at MIT, who does uh, work about neuroscience and moral philosophy. And she's actually put people in, in an fMRI machine while they're doing the, the trolley problem kind of question. So so she, I, I'm happy to talk about some of her work also. Oh, definitely. And we will link to your podcast as well. That is terrific. Anything before we dive into that, that just, just tickled you particularly about the episode? What I, what I like is, or I, I want to say what I like, but what, what struck me is thinking about the beginning of COVID and, and some of the challenges that, that we felt like we had to make. I was living, and I still am living in Westchester County, which was in near New York City, where that was it was a hot spot two years ago, just over two years ago. And trying to hear and, and see the decisions that everyone was trying to make about what decisions do I need to make for those who are putting them putting their lives at risk, right? Not just not just the frontline healthcare workers, although they were there too, but you know, my wife and I, we didn't go to the grocery store. We had food delivered. So we were putting somebody at risk to have food delivered for us. And, you know, there were questions that, that people were grappling with, with ICU beds and ventilators that, you know, the, everything was so uh, trying to ration out what was going to be the access to healthcare. There were real life trolley problem issues that were going on in, in New York a couple of years ago. And these are not necessarily abstract questions. You know, as we think about what's the role of agency and versus what's the role of actively killing somebody versus passively letting them die. That's a whole other question about how we experience that. I mean, that's, that's, I always find that a fascinating exploration of how do we, 
not only there's not a right answer, but what are the ways in which we think about these questions? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is a favorite episode of a lot of people for a number of reasons. And I think because you, you can definitely, and as, as we are doing and, and going to keep doing, sort of talk about these issues and, and dissect them. But the twists that you can do using the setup of the TV show are kind of cool. We talk about this as like a model problem, you know, a theoretical model. And Chidi literally builds a model. And as he's explaining it, we get different shots of the, the model itself and his hands on the train. Like he's you know, and he's so into Having to his. Pull the lever, yeah, yeah, and well, even on his his model in 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 the classroom. Oh yeah, he is really excited about the the actual model, I think, and and thinks it's going to be a blast to talk about the the model, as does Jason. And, and so immediately, immediately, I, I know I, this is really I feel like one of these peak cheaty episodes with uh, mm-hmm. you know chalkboard cheaty who I love because I I so wish like. I could be him in the way of his initial plans. And, uh, and Jason thinks it's just a fun game where he can call, what does he say, I call blue or something. Right, and, right. And Chidi's like, no, you know. And then, <laughs> and then and then they go right off, you know, both Eleanor and Tahani have, have their twists on the, the problem while it's sitting there as a model. And then to turn it into the simulation, which is brilliant. Feels uh, very real. And, and well, and that's... Well, one of the one of the examples that I know Michael creates for for Chidi is one version is that that he knows somebody he knows his his friend who has the red, the red boots I'm, I'm blanking on his name but Henry I think it's Henry, Henry. right he has Henry <laughs> his boot buddy and and what's interesting and what's what's challenging I I took a class in in undergrad at Princeton with Peter Singer who's one of the mm. uh, strongest advocates for utilitarianism and and that's that's how we think about a lot of these questions and. One of the challenges about ethical issues is the difference between empathy and compassion. And one of the things that that's hard is that we evolved, and I I think many of your listeners too believe in evolution. Right? Evolution is accurate. That's the that's the explanation of of, of where we came from. And on the African savanna, it made sense that you knew the people around you. There were not strangers, right? You, if you lived in one part of a tribe in, in the savannah, you didn't necessarily know people 500 miles away, let alone from the other side of the world. Like that's, you know, that didn't exist at all. So we naturally care about the people who are most like, and and what happens is that we tend to have our spot, they call it the spotlight effect, where you focus on the things that are highest on your radar screen, but you don't always see the issues that that need to be dealt with. So, so Peter Singer has written as a website that actually the, that my wife and I use it for our end of year donations. Because when people think about how do I use my my resources, we tend to use the things that are most on our minds. And sometimes that's religious institutions for sure. Sometimes that's cultural institutions. There's you know we we tend to focus on the things that are most close to us, whether that's philosophically, geographically. But what we don't think about is ten cents gives rehydrating salts. To, to people in the developing world and can save a couple hundred lives. And you know, we already, it's not even on our radar screen unless you're looking for it here. And so when when Michael is creating this trolley problem of like, oh, you know your friend Henry, it, it changes the calculation because I want to take care of the person that is closest to me. And that's not always the 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 quote unquote right choice. And that's an interesting one because he actually initially chooses to kill Henry before he knows it's Henry. That's one right. person and there are five over there. And I thought the other thing that was just ingenious about that was that, of course, Henry's wearing the the actual boots that were part of Chidi's own moral dilemma 
earlier, which I think is maybe the first time we heard the phrase, you know, this is why people hate moral philosophers. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, and he... <laughs> And then the, he ends up holding, when when he smashes him, not only all the covered with blood again, but the actual, what looks like the boot. And, and Eleanor says, I think that it's actually the foot, his foot in the boot. <laughs> but, right. Uh, <laughs> but in a way, that was the first, ep- that that episode on, on lying was the first of the Good Place episodes, I think, really zeroed in on this Kantian problem of can I follow mm-hmm. my principles pure and Chidi at the end of this one will say look I'm just not a guy I'm just not ever going to choose to actively kill someone like that's my moral principle and I I assume he would express that as a, a Kantian principle and and yet the the previous episode showed how that's not completely satisfying position to have and here here it's sort of thrown back in him which kind of reminds us that like these these modeled problems like this one are you know they're they're helpful but they're also infuriating and mm-hmm. I actually one of the things that gave me a sort of cheaty stomachache about this episode even though cheaty himself doesn't express it as a stomachache is I I began to wonder whether this episode was questioning whether these kind of models whether it's a model problem or just a, a model like utilitarianism whether they themselves are not helpful and i've got so much mm-hmm. at stake because i feel like the good place is all about see if you study these problems in moral philosophy it will actually help you but and maybe it does i mean at the end you know we get chidi's answer which is you know which is no you know having, having now experienced this in a vivid way i'm just sticking with my moral principle i'm not buying into this utilitarian thing at all maybe that is the the answer the episode was trying to push on. Well, I think what's interesting is, I mean, and, and Chidi talks talks about this, and I think all, all philosophers talk about about Kant versus David Hume and the and the role of emotions. But it also comes into these questions as well of Daniel Kahneman, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, who wrote a, a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, and and also links with with some work from Jonathan Haidt, who's a professor at, uh, at NYU, wrote a great book called. The righteous mind. One of the things that we discover and we know is that is that at least the way that we work as human beings is that we often make an emotional decision and then retroactively make an intellectual or cognitive decision. So Chidi is perfectly happy to spend all of his time in his head, as by the way, I think a lot of rabbis like to be able to do also, <laughs> right? Like spend a lot of time thinking about this. Well, we could do this and we could do that. And right, the rabbis just have pages and pages and pages of these very abstract cognitive answers. But when Michael puts Chidi in front of that trolley and he's got to make that decision right then, we make a lot of moral decisions instantaneously. And Kahneman says, we think very quickly. We can then reflect on it afterwards. We can cogitate and make it make a decision. But our immediate decision is to be able to say, this is, this is what I want to do. And one of the things is that the word rational and rationalization are very, very close. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and our lives are very, like, we think that we're being rational, but very often we can rationalize afterwards. So let's find our way back to that. What I wanted to do is throw a, a couple of Jewish texts in the mix here, because I mean, it's being suggested that this kind of analysis might actually be helpful, although, uh, as I was saying, I'm now starting to wonder. But I wanted to mention a couple of things, which if you were determined to try to dope out this problem in a Jewish way, what would you have? And so the there's actually not a ton in the Talmudic tradition in its original, you know, a handful of paragraphs that end up being applied to other cases. But but this line is kind of interesting. There's a story in the book of Samuel, what's uh, mm-hmm. comes to be known as the book of Second Samuel or Shmuel Bet. Uh, it's in chapter 20, and we'll put all these 
texts and their quotes and, and links to them in the show notes. And the incident has to do with a guy who leads a rebellion against King David, David Melech. His name is Sheva ben Bichri. And so David's army under his commander Yoav go go off to look for him to get him and kill him and they track him to to the city called the uh, Avel Beit Mach and they uh, surround the city and besiege it and basically they're gonna they're gonna take him or they're gonna destroy the city in the process and there's what the the Bible calls a, a wise woman in the city who comes out to uh, confront Yoav and basically says like are you really are you really gonna kill all of us uh, is that is that what you know what you would do to get and and Yoav says no no I wouldn't be the kind of guy who did that I just we just want we just want him and um, and so this woman says well you know. Uh, that's easy. I've got his head. I'll just toss it out, you know. <laughs> and and he's like, great. And uh, so he accepts the deal. And then it, and then at least the way the Bible tells it, she then talks to the city, and they're like, great, let's cut off his head. <laughs> and they talk. So uh, it seems like a very uh, Eleanor move. <laughs> in a certain way and uh uh and and so uh Yoav gets what they want they get the life of one guy and then they mm -hmm. they don't kill the whole city and as i was reading it over this morning i was thinking oh it's a bit of a twist on the sodom and gomorrah thing where god is going to destroy you know a whole city even and they negotiate over what about mm -hmm. righteous people but anyway that this gets picked up in a couple of the talmudic works to discuss the general situation uh, the way it's set up in the talmud is that if a group of people, and I assume by people in this case they mean Jews, were told by non-Jews, give us one of your group and we will kill him, and if not, we will kill all of you. They should all be killed rather than surrendering even one soul of Israel. Mm -hmm. So sorry about the nationocentric uh, thing here to the listeners. However, if they designated a specific person in the manner that Sheva ben Bichri was designated, they should surrender him to them rather than all of them be killed. And so what I found interesting is that the kind of forks off of that, they try to say, what does that mean? Like if they designated, was it just the fact that they said him by name? And mm -hmm. in that case, I think it would mean that they just were like, okay, well, we didn't make the choice. It's like cheating, like, I don't want to pull right. the lever. The other interesting thing is that it says... Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish said, this applies if he is deserving death, like Sheva ben Bichri. And there's an opinion later on that, you know, if he was someone who was already like terminally ill, like maybe someone was going to die anyway, and that person's life in some sense was less valuable. But that's only as far as they go. They don't do the five Shakespeare's versus whatever kind of thing. And I was thinking about that, like it seems like there's a hard principle here in the Talmudic tradition, which is no, you don't choose one life actively, except under mm -hmm. very narrow circumstances that have nothing to do with really who that person is or who that person is to you, other than they happen to be tied to your destiny right there. So is that, I mean, does that seem, uh, does, that, does that resonate that there's really not a utilitarian position if you're sort of operating out of the Jewish tradition? Yeah. I, I mean, I think Judaism pushes against a lot of the utilitarian perspective because there's the line that, that we quote all the time, which is that whoever saves a single life, it's as if they save the universe. Uh, whoever takes a single life, it's as if they take an entire universe. That there is, I'm going to expand on this in a second, but there's, there's a conception, at least, that, that every life is worth an infinite amount. And at least mathematically, one times infinity, one, one infinity times 100 infinity is actually going to be the same infinity. We can, you know, we can talk about how that works mathematically, but you know, when, when, that every life has, has quote unquote, infinite value. The problem, and I, again, I was thinking about this at the beginning of COVID, is that we don't really understand the difference between really, really big and infinity. At, mm. at some point, we, we see how many hundreds of thousands of people 
die, millions of people die. COVID, the number, how many millions of people have died from COVID? That's a statistic, right? We're as, as we're watching it in Ukraine. That's a statistic that's there. So we we're not able to actually conceptualize that each individual life is is worth an infinite amount because we we see like everything sort of gets amalgamated there. So Judaism seems to teach that each individual person has infinite value. So it would push back against this idea, but there's also a difference and and it, and it happens from a neuroscientific perspective, at least from from what I understand, which is that we react differently of letting somebody die versus killing them. And that happens with passive euthanasia versus active euthanasia. It happens with abortion in Jewish law, that, right? There's that if if somebody is going to die, it is okay to let that happen, but it is not okay to actively murder somebody. What I thought was one of the most brilliant pieces of writing in the episode was where they switched the situation to the OR, Dr. Chidi and the little girl. Yeah. And, you know, and it gets him to this place where he says, look, I'm not, cut, I'm not cutting Eleanor open in order to, to harvest her organs for these five people. But the girl comes up and pleads her case and then says, you know, about the evil, how does she say this? The, oh, a really bad man ran over him with a trolley. But I think which was sort of a funny way of saying, yeah, you know, you're implicated in this act. Actually, like you can't wiggle out of it. Because I thought actually that that's ethically a strong argument that there's a difference. And in a way, the little girl is saying, yeah, you're, you're telling yourself a story that you're not involved in the, in the death of those other people or the dying of those other people over there. And I do certainly wonder, I mean, this is why I wanted to talk to you about this episode in particular, is kind of how you square that those awarenesses of neuroscience and how we work. Like, is that, do we have to align ourselves with that? Or are we supposed to use these teachings to f kind of fight against them? Yeah, I mean, well, that, so just because something is innate in our evolutionary history doesn't mean we have to act on it. Like that's you know, part, of, part of what we're able to do is, is overcome these kinds of impulses. But it becomes it becomes more complicated to be able to make these decisions. It comes back to some of Peter Singer's work, for example, and 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 the life you can save. Right, our natural inclination is that we want to help those closest to us. That's our natural inclination. But we can say, actually, hold on, I want to allocate some of these resources to other places that that may not be on my radar screen. I've got to actively look for these other places to be able to help or to be able to reduce harm in different ways. So I think that. Ethics are actually, there's a line that I've heard from, from Paul Rude Wolpe, who's at, who's at Emory, it's actually David Wolpe's brother, who had shared that everyone can fill out this, this answer is that ethics is the difference between right and hmm. wrong. And Paul says, no, that ethics is about right versus right. What are the competing values that we have? And what are the ones in which we make these decisions where one value is going to override? And so the reason that the trolley problem is so complicated, and the reason that this episode is so great is not, should I kill this person or not? That's a very easy decision. Should I actively kill somebody or should I try to save five other people? One value is do no harm. Right? Chidi says, no, I, I have this code of, you know, the, as the Hippocratic Oath. And also for the vast, vast majority of human beings, it's innate for us to be able to say, do not murder somebody. That's right. That's, you know, we, we don't do that. That's one value. And the other value is I want to save five people's lives. Um, or 10 people's lives or 20. And, and so we were dealing with different questions. And that's why, at least in rabbinic literature, there's both what the halakha says, but also the, the dissenting opinion to be able to say, here's why this is even a discussion. It's not a question of, should I murder somebody or not? Like that's, that's not a discussion in 
in rabbinic literature. But this question of what should we do if somebody is, is designated for death and by doing that, we could save a town. What do we do? Hmm. That's why there's a lot of discussion here. Yeah, you know, you're reminding me that Michael's original reaction to the problem was to mis- quote unquote misunderstand it as, oh, it's not enough to kill five people. I want to kill all six. And he draws. I have the sword. <laughs> and he's and they show the drawing with the blood. You know the. That and Michael's a very good artist, and but actually, as you're talking, it reminds me of something that comes up later, which is that that Michael, in the episode where they pass through the bad place headquarters and they are trying to get to the portal, Michael says he realizes the the other solution to the trolley problem, which is yeah. to give him, which is to figure out how to sacrifice himself and save everybody, you know, essentially mm-hmm. on on all the tracks and. So on the one hand, I think the trolley problem is like a real because we, we don't we usually don't have that option where we can. It's I guess what it's saying is that in, in this form of the problem, you don't you don't get to say, no, I reject the premise there. It's always somebody's at stake, somebody's mm-hmm. life versus somebody else. And I guess in that sense, I appreciate even the trolley problem formulation of it. It clarifies it and it sort of picks up those dimensions. You know, you you had mentioned, I think, that there's been some study of how people's brains actually work when relating to different forms of this. Is mm-hmm. that something you can talk about? Yeah, there's there's been some work that's that's interesting about levels of intentionality of how much do we judge someone's actions as right and wrong of intent versus outcome, and and that's that's very interesting to be able to see. And and there's a it's. They do something called a trans, I think, transmagnetic stimulation. I think it's uh, that 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 can actually lower the amount that somebody thinks an intention is wrong. They, they focus much more on the outcome than on on intentionality. And because we all we always sort of have these trade offs here of when we think about moral responsibility of who is responsible. And this comes up with questions of like of of self driving cars and you know the, so you know we put it in of cheating of who's who would be responsible. Is it Chidi for having to make that decision in that moment. Is it Michael who's torturing Chidi? Mm-hmm. Is it the people who created that that system where the trolley is stuck, where where the trolley happens to be placed? Or these there are all sorts of different ways in which we can say who's ultimately responsible here. And there's a really good article in, in online called Ion A E I O N about moral luck, and it's and it's. This, I think, this is actually even more interesting than um, than the trolley problem. Although I think this this plays into the trolley problem a little bit. Which is, imagine that whether that's you or somebody, you know, somebody that you know, decide that you are going to go to a bar, you're going to drink, and you're decide that you're going to to drive home. And you drive drunk, and you drive your normal way, and you get home safely. So that's one, which is that's fine, right? So did you do do something wrong? A little bit. Mm-hmm. Same same situation. You're drunk and you drive and you drive your, your normal way, but some a cat jumps in front of you and you swerve and you hit into a tree. Or did you do something wrong there? Hmm. Okay, next example of you're driving, you're driving, you're driving, and this time a person happens to jump in front of you and you kill that person. Did you do something wrong? Hmm. Right, all, all these are the same intentionality, hmm. but uh, now imagine that you meant to drive drunk and as you're as you're walking there, walking there, you fumble and your keys go into the sewer. So you have to call a cab, and so nothing bad happens. But you intended to be able to drive drunk, and so that you know, there's all different levels of, of moral luck of what's the interplay of the intentionality versus the outcome, and that's what's hard with the trolley problem. Also, 
is what are you intending to do? But then there's also what's actually going to happen. What if, what if the lever's stuck? What if what if all the five people are able to see the trolley and jump out of the way? Right? There, there are other ways to be able to, to look at these kind of counterfactuals and questions as well. And, and we view them differently psychologically and, and neuroscientifically of how judgy are we of, of these different processes and outcomes. So I'm imagining that what you, you're going to tell us, if you're going to tell us, is that the ones that look more kind of visible to us, the things that cause harm, we then attribute some sort of intentionality to them, even when they're not different. Is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah. That we will, right. That we will say our, like our immediate reaction is if somebody killed someone, we judge them badly. We judge the intentionality higher based on the outcome. Because if somebody dropped their keys versus somebody killed someone, we are going to actually understandably judge the killing of a person to be worse. And yet the mental state of the actor was the same. And so when we make these moral judgments, they're not simple moral judgments of what's right and wrong. We judge based on what the outcome is and what the intention is, which is which is actually Judaism has this great tension as well of you know what did you what did you mean to do on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur for the for the sins that were intentional and the sins that were unintentional. And and you know, we're in the middle of Vayikra right now of all the sacrifices that we bring for the mistakes that we made that like we didn't know that we hurt somebody, but we're gonna bring a goat to be able to say we're sorry. <laughs> so so you're in the business of trying to bring an awareness of the science of us, I think, to these kinds of problems. Chidi comes with his blackboard and says, I'm going to model the problem, you know, in, in words diagrams and mm-hmm. and a little bit of tactile uh, model train. And Michael ups the ante and says, you're going to like feel... <laughs> You're going to have blood in your mouth, right? Uh, and but at the same time, it is it is modeling, and it is it is trying to. He claims, at least Michael claims, he's trying to draw out features of the situation that help him. <laughs> That's what he mm-hmm. says, even though it's clearly just torturing. But he's he's torturing Chidi with the idea, and I'm feeling kind of tortured about this. These gradations on the model. What if we do this? What if we do that? That Michael mm-hmm. comes up with are brilliant, and yet in some way they don't help or they don't bring nuance in the show to the mm-hmm. problem. So do these awarenesses as you do your work, bring some more nuance to, to how we approach these problems. Yeah, I, you know, we, we try to raise more questions than answers for obvious <laughs> reasons. That's uh, because one of the things about science is that there's, what are the assumptions that we're coming in with it? What are the things that are that are replicable? On its surface is a problem, but on a deeper level, it's actually, a, it's a wonderful thing. But there's a discussion in, in psychology right now, which they call the replication crisis, which are all of these studies that were done, not all of these, but about half of these very classic psychology experiments that people use to be able to inform their lives. The marshmallow experiment or the the implicit association test and the implicit bias test. These are all things that have either not been replicated, which means that that the assumptions were faulty, or they don't have the same level of impact as we think they are. And how do we translate some of these scientific examples to to real life? Not always translated here, but that's actually one of the strengths of science is to be able to say, ah, we thought this was correct, but actually, no, we were wrong. So here's how we're going to try to help this become a little bit more correct. So one of the things about philosophy is you can think about these kinds of questions and explore them and, and tease out what are the ways in which we think of these questions. And when this gets to the later episodes, I don't want to spoil this for those no, who are not spoil away. We're definitely, we're, we're um, spoiling podcasts. So. Well, so, so in season three, when Chidi meets Simone, he's looking at it from a philosophical perspective. She's looking at it from a neuroscientific perspective. And she says, you know, there are real answers in there. There aren't necessarily answers, but there are ways to be able to look at these kinds of questions of how do we react and how do we respond? How do we think about these kinds of questions when we're placed in 
in ethical quandaries. You were talking about moral luck before. I'm wondering if you would say that part of our moral luck would be either our awareness of our own neuroscience or neurobiology. Mm-hmm. And does that factor in? Like it either helps us make decisions or does it actually make us more accountable to know mm-hmm. these kinds of things? Or does even studying philosophy or Jewish texts makes us more responsible? Does it just make us look? I mean, that's another hall of mirrors, I guess, is that you said that we talk about whether we judge someone as being responsible, but which is different from whether we actually are responsible. Yeah. There, there was an article in the Times a few, maybe five or 10 years ago, where they actually interviewed a bunch of moral philosophy professors and asked, are they more ethical than the average person? <laughs> oh, yeah. And the answer was no. Do they do moral professor, moral philosophy professors call their mother more often than other people? They give more <laughs> to charity than other people. And the answer, the answer is actually was no. That because there are a lot of scientists, Daniel Kahneman, who's one of the great experts about decision making and, and the ways in which we mess up in our decision making. Like he says, I fall into these all the time. I studied, I got a Nobel Prize in how and why we make decisions and how do we do it better. And I fall into that trap as well. So what's helpful, I think, in studying and in and engaging in these questions is being invested in them because there's some research and hopefully this will be replicated as well. But people remember a little bit about what they hear, but what the people really remember is what they themselves say. So, mm-hmm. so when people are talking about these kinds of questions, what they remember is when they themselves have to articulate this, these questions. So when they're thinking about moral issues, they need to be able to talk about it. They need to have some language to be able to explore these questions. They need to be, they need to be pushed. They need to be able to say, wait a second, this is, this is actually what I think we should do. And so studying moral philosophy and, and I think studying Jewish text on, on its own, I think is, is interesting and valuable, but in terms of being able to really influence people's lives, that's, you've actually got to study, right? It's, it's the great tech is the great story of um, somebody says, I want to be a rabbi. I've gone through the Talmud two or three times already. And the rabbi says, that's great. How many times has it gone through you? And I think that's the real challenge of not just having these intellectual discussions. Chidi's trying to explore these questions, trying to be able to come up with an answer. And then he realizes that there is no answer. And that opens him up a little bit, being able to say, there's not one response, but there are different ways we can respond to these kinds of questions. So you've now, I think, explained to me why this season is in the sequence that it is. The The previous episode was the existential crisis, and it seemed to be mostly about Michael and his, what's the point of even thinking about these ethical questions? But in parallel was this other story of Tahani facing her own, like who she, who she is, and, and it was much more muted. But in this episode, I think I, I get why they put the, the B story here about Tahani and Jason. Jason has like the most probably important an interesting ethical line he says to Tahani in their little therapy session with Janet, I'm nice to you, but you're mean to me. There's something wrong about that, but I can't put my finger on what it right. is. And which is like, yeah, right. Cause like, in any, like, actually that is sort of right. If you're as philosophical as we're trying to be or cheaty in the mm-hmm. other story, it, you know, that, that kind of makes sense. And then Tahani says the exact same thing Michael does, which is it's hard to change. But then they work it out. They come out, I think it's maybe 
is it Jason who comes up with the solution about, because he wants her to grab his butt, you know, so he says, right, oh, once know, a week. Like, once a week. So, you know, we'll sit and they come up with this idea that they'll say that he sat in gum and she'll have to like, but it's like, it's a very charming. And I think also it's, it's an example of what you're saying. They come up with a thing they can do. I mean, look, obviously she should own up to the fact that they're seeing each other. That's the, the problem. But I don't know if we accept that there's some constraint on her about that, that she sort of inches her way toward, toward something else. And in the the other story basically the bottom line is this whole thing about the trolley problem is just torture and mm-hmm. and which michael and actually even eleanor seem to enjoy the, the process and chidi who's trying so hard to become aware and thinks that this study is going to help him so i don't know if i'm if it cheers me up or if i'm like even more like ah oh, but i think it in a way it's another part of the existential crisis of studying philosophy and text and i love how you put it in terms of the difference between just doing them and wanting to learn from it yeah and that's the crux of judaism of naaseh v'nishma you know we tend to at least in an american western society when you want to do something that leads you to do when in fact, it's sometimes you do something and then you understand afterwards. And like Michael starts to recognize that what he's doing is not leading him to where, where he wants to be. You know, he, he has a very interesting character arc. And so being able to have this interplay between the intentionality and the action, that's how we move forward. I was wondering at the end about Michael's last line where Chidi really faces him and in a way he sort of drops the trolley thing and, and Michael says, what, you want me to like actually apologize and I'm so lost and vulnerable. Right. <laughs> and, and Chidi right, just right, like right. stares him down. And which I really, which I, I love the, just in that episode, the Chidi arc where he goes from, as I say, uh, chalkboard Chidi, who I really, I fantasize about that being valuable to, uh, I don't know what you would call this other guy, you know, in your face, Chidi. And, right. Aggressive. And and... Aggressive. Yeah. And, you know, earlier on, I, I saw this moment. Oh, there was a challenge moment earlier because when Michael was arguing about after they talk about the paper, you know, Michael's ridiculous papers about Les Mis and how you get 70 point, 17 points off just for being French or something. And, right. And, um, and Chidi kind of stands up to him and says, basically, look, when it comes to human ethics, I just know more than you. And right in that scene, Michael gets this kind of look on his face right before he proposes, let's make this more concrete. And I thought to myself, oh, he's thinking of a torture thing. And I yeah. wondered at the end when he gives that like sincere, because we all know that this is, you know, actors acting and Michael is still a demon and, and I'm so lost and vulnerable. And he even, sh- you know, kind of shakes his head, you know, in effect. And I'm thinking, I thought what was going to happen is like, uh, Cheetah's going to say, no, nah, you're just, you know, <laughs> right. you know call, call, call bullsh- bullshit on the moment. And Michael like, oh, darn it, you know, but, but no, it seemed to work. And I thought, wow, was that like a sincere... Is it again? Was it was it basically a replica of the Jason Tahani thing? Just like okay, there's a simple. Let's start with you and me, and mm-hmm. that's and that's all we got. And and the relationship and where does that where does that start? And and every relationship has has its ups and downs. Yeah, you know, I think one of these very great good place lines is after that confrontation in the in the pre op scene, and I love how. <laughs> Michael's like, but I said my bad, you know. But right. then, um, then Eleanor finds Chidi, and he's sitting there looking at a book, and he says that reading a table of contents helps calm me down. It's like a menu, but the food is words. Yeah, and and I. I love that he went back there, I have to say. maybe, And I think maybe what I'm learning by listening to you, 
I hope carefully, is that eating the food is not like eating the words, but it is the part, it is a stage, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's on the way to eating the food is maybe reading the table of contents. And and I've been enjoying watching The the Good Place and trying to think if there is sort of a table of contents that it's walking us in. As I say, I thought the episode actually, though I didn't really realize it till now, is in a way an extension of the previous one. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they do a, a very nice job of, of creating the arcs and, and, and building and, and moving from one step to the next. And Michael recognizes that over this time that he has a level of humility of he thought he knew, like he had said, I would all, this is going to be a snap to get these four people. And Michael says, you know, you beat me in in four months and then you kept beating me 801 (laughs) other times, 802 other times. And that's because I think people can be surprising. And I think that's, that's what's scary and that's what's wonderful about life. I think we have to call out another Good Place classic moment is Achidi's rap musical about Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard. My name is Kierkegaard and my writing is impeccable. <laughs> Check out my teleological suspension of the ethical. <laughs> no, no, that's no, I knew that as that was <laughs> But then again, I think it's probably every, I mean, the truth is it's all own up to this. Like it's, it's me thinking about like, why couldn't I thought of writing a TV show? Here we are, here I am with my pieces of paper and my Jewish texts and my, you know, podcast conversations. Why couldn't I, if I had a pastel colored, you know, multimedia (laughs) (laughs) happening? And I think Chidi's like, yeah, I want to write a TV show. Right. write Hamilton about Aristotle and Kant. (laughs) And and, and I think that's, that's one of the things that's, you know, that we link to too, which is that there's all the ideas that we have, but how is it actually executed? And that's where the rubber meets the road. When we die, what's left is the residue of all of our actions and our intentions die die with us. Is there anyone you would call out as an early teacher or influence who really got you started thinking about ethics or ethical philosophy? I couldn't say I studied with him because there were 200 people in the class, but studying some of Peter Singer's work was really interesting and really, which by the way, there's a great little joke in the trolley episode that I I want to shout out to that when they're going on the trolley, I freeze framed it. There were two, there were two uh, films. One was Strangers Under a Train and the other was Bend It Like Bentham, which is uh, Jeremy Bentham is the founder of utilitarianism, which I thought was, it must've been like a Megan Amram, who's the one of the writers. She, you know, she comes up with a a lot of the puns that, but I, you know, another another professor that I took at Princeton was uh, Professor Leora Bitnitsky, who is a professor of philosophy. Um, she has a great book called Judaism Became a Religion. And, and she inspired a lot of my reading of Spinoza and Mendelssohn and Jewish philosophy. That's I had started college as a math major and went to religion and Jewish studies. And kind of the indicator that Jewish studies was where I meant to go was when it was time to study for finals. I was much more interested in rereading all the Jewish philosophy than I was in studying the math homework there. So <laughs> Professor Ratnitsky, I actually studied with her. Like she, like we were small enough that, that I studied with her. And then even though I haven't, we've met a couple of times, but not really, he wouldn't know me from anybody, but, but Jonathan Haidt and his work on, on moral psychology and the righteous mind, that's, that is, that was a really revelatory book for me of being able to understand the different ways in which we think about morality and help me understand Judaism and questions of Leviticus and and questions of liberal Zionism. And it helped me, you know, help me understand why these are challenging questions for those of us in 21st century America right now. 
Well, Jeff, it is great to talk to you, and I hope we'll do this again, particularly on some of the episodes you referenced coming up where this neuroscience and related dimensions come back up. Thank you. It was wonderful to be able to talk with you, John, and thank you to everybody who's listening. And with that, Chapter 19 of Tove is in the books. Hope you've enjoyed this episode and gotten something out of it. And if you want to dig deeper into some of the ideas or studies we referenced, go to our show notes at tovegoodplace.com. You can help us get the word out by giving a good rating for the podcast, subscribing, and sharing it however you do your recommending. Keep up with Tove on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Tove Good Place. I'm John Spiracevet at RabbiJS3 and RabbiJohn.net. And Jeff Middleman is on Twitter at Rabbi Middleman. That's one T and one L. And definitely check out his organization, SinaiAndSynapses.org, where you can also find Jeff's conversation series called Sacred Science and Down the Wormhole, a podcast about science and religion. Feel free to send us any feedback, ideas, or questions to tove at tovegoodplace.com. Thanks for listening. Now, go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.